You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about identifying and treating patients at risk for early cardiovascular disease. Joining me is Dr. Shobha Natarajan, who is one of the attending physicians in the Division of Cardiology also here at CHOP. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Katie, for having me. So the Cardiovascular Risk Assessment Clinic here at CHOP is a new outpatient clinic aimed at identifying risk and evidence of premature cardiovascular disease in certain high-risk populations. So risk and evidence are two different components of this. Let's start with risk. Some risk may come from a patient's own medical history, such as a diagnosis of sickle cell disease, whereas other risks may come from family history, such as familial hypercholesterolemia. Let's identify who the high-risk populations are. So first, what pediatric diagnoses put a child at risk for early cardiovascular disease? Well, Katie, obesity is a growing epidemic, hasn't really hit a plateau yet, unfortunately. These patients are at risk of developing early cardiovascular risk factors that would put them at risk for heart attack and stroke and other serious adverse events in early adulthood even. So being overweight, which is a BMI percentile greater than 85th percentile, or obesity greater than the 95th percentile is certainly a risk factor and someone you would want to screen. Other issues include high blood pressure, which can also track into adulthood, sedentary lifestyle, which can often accompany a suboptimal body mass index can lead to diabetes in adulthood. So having diabetes is certainly a risk factor. And then there are certain high-risk medical conditions, which was put out nicely by an article in circulation in 2006 by Dr. Cavey, who is a pediatric cardiologist. Familial hypercholesterolemia, as you mentioned, diabetes, solid organ transplant and chronic kidney disease, heart defects such as coarctation of the aorta, Kawasaki disease with or without aneurysms, inflammatory diseases such as lupus, and cancer treatment survivors. And other conditions are also having growing evidence that there are long-term issues like being small for gestational age, extreme prematurity, prior history of ECMO, twin-twin transfusion syndrome, sickle cell disease, etc. I imagine some of those things that you mentioned at the end are conditions where Life expectancy used to be shorter, so we're probably just starting to understand some of the long-term adult cardiovascular outcomes of those conditions that we fortunately are able to do a lot more in pediatrics now. You're absolutely right. And of course, CHOP is one center that has really contributed greatly to the survival of a lot of these conditions. And I think the research is very difficult to sort of obtain these long-term outcomes of these patients, but they're finding more and more subclinical changes that would suggest that they're at increased risk. And 
We also talked about risk in terms of family history. So you mentioned familial hypercholesterolemia. Are there other conditions that should put us on alert for an elevated risk of early cardiovascular disease based on family history? Yes, other than familial hypercholesterolemia, family history of significant obesity, and you can sort of tell that when you see patients in their families, a lot of times an obese patient has obese parents. If there is a history of early stroke or heart attack or sudden cardiac death in patients generally under the age of 60, if there's a family history of diabetes, I think that social determinants of health is something that general pediatricians really know well about their patients. So access to exercise and healthy food, neighborhoods that they live in, those sort of things I think could be red flags for risk factors that should be pursued. Mm. And so we've been talking about risk, but evidence is another component of this. So there may be patients who we don't consider high risk because they don't have one of the disease processes you listed, but they have incidental findings on screenings, which highlights the importance of some of the cardiovascular disease screenings that we do in primary care. But let's review some of the guidelines to ensure that we're catching the children that we need to identify. So first, when should we be checking blood pressures? That's a really good question, and I think the screening certainly starts in the primary care office, and primary pediatricians are a key to identifying these patients. Blood pressure should be checked in all well-child checks starting at the age of three. For patients who have obesity or are taking blood pressure medications, have renal disease or coarctation or diabetes, these checks should be at every encounter. Upper body blood pressures or arm blood pressures are the most important way of measuring a blood pressure. Leg pressures we really don't have normative values for, and I think it's really difficult sometimes to get blood pressures in a three-year-old, but it's, it's very important to, to try to do that. Sometimes we check on our three-year-old and we know that we're not getting the most accurate reading, but it's just the first time that we've tried. And so sometimes it is a good practice and we keep checking at the next visits, even if it's a sick visit, just to make sure that we were getting something that was accurate. I agree. And there's also other ways to get around those difficulties. Sometimes with the smaller kids, when they run into clinic, their blood pressure is going to be high. Mm -hmm. So doing an exit pressure after you examine the kid on the table would be uh, helpful. The other important point is that when there is a high blood pressure at rest, particularly greater than 95th percentile, that you bring the child back, say, in a month to three months to to recheck. A diagnosis of hypertension is usually done based on three blood pressure checks unless you have stage two hypertension from the get-go. There's a great 2017 clinical practice guideline for hypertension that was revised from the 2004 report, which has great quick tables for reference. Great. We'll look for that. And we can also link to that on our website for everyone. So the second one is when should we do screening lipids? And do I need to make my patients fast for that lipid screening? That's also a really good question. Universal screening starts at around 9 to 11 years of age and once between 17 and 21 years of age. They don't have to be fasting on the initial screen, but if they are abnormal, particularly a low HDL or an elevated non-HDL, then they should have a fasting lipid panel. 
If there are risk factors, then they should have a fasting panel between two and eight years of life or 12 and 16 years of life. And my understanding of why they don't need to be fasting is that in a familial hypercholesterolemia, the numbers would be so high that the diet impact of what that child probably just ate is irrelevant. That is absolutely correct. Right. But still important for us to recheck those kind of low abnormals uh, still because we want to make sure that they truly are normal. And the nice thing is that there is uh, an expert panel on integrated guidelines for cardiovascular health and risk reduction in children that was published in 2011. They have a nice table that lays out all of the risk factors, when to assess them. It's a nice chart to have on your wall as a reminder. Great. Good for us to laminate it on our bulletin boards. What, if any, cardiovascular screening should we do in obese patients? I know you mentioned before that they're in this high-risk group, so do we handle their screenings differently? I think it's pretty much the same. You get a blood pressure uh, weight and a BMI, of course, at every visit. But lipid screening should start probably much younger, at around one to four years of age, if there are risk factors or a family history because we want to diagnose important risk factors early on so we can treat them early on. We are in the process of submitting a manuscript looking at echo parameters, echocardiographic parameters and hypertension. And interestingly, the LV mass index is higher in patients who are obese and have hypertension compared to either factor alone. So screening for high blood pressure in obese patients is quite important as there can be subclinical changes that we wouldn't know about, the patient wouldn't be symptomatic from, but there are certainly changes that can affect long-term health. And interestingly enough, patients with the BMI greater than or equal to the 95th percentile have three times the odds of a higher mass index compared to patients who are not obese. Hmm. Controlling for gender race and ethnicity, ABPM results, other risk factors, medications, and age. So obesity is a big issue Mm -hmm. and can affect many things. So same screening that we do for everyone else, but like you mentioned, if the obesity is present when they're younger, adding on an early lipid screening as well. So when should we be doing a cardiovascular screening exam for sports? That's a great question, and there's no mandated answer. But for my colleagues and I, I think anyone with symptoms with exercise, meaning cardiovascular symptoms with exercise, chest pain, certainly syncope, shortness of breath, I think it would be appropriate to do a cardiovascular screening. Anybody with a family history of early heart disease as we mentioned before, or if there's a personal history of one of the high-risk medical conditions that are mentioned before. And I think if you do the integrative CV health screening every year as recommended, pediatricians would collect these red flags and be able to refer sooner rather than later. And we also did do a cardiac sports physical podcast previously with Dr. Molly Shaw, so people can look out for that, too, with more details about how to do that exam. Yes. So I have a question. We've been talking a lot about the risk of family history, but what comes up in my clinic sometimes is 
where do we define that family history? Where are the ends of that? So if someone says, oh, well, my grandma or my great aunt or someone else had an early heart attack, say, or one of these other risk factors, how far out is too far out to really worry about? I think family history in primary relatives, that is your parents or the patient's parents, the patient's siblings, the patient's grandparents. I think if there is a family history of any of those things in any one of those relatives, that would be an indication. Great. But this cousin once removed or a relative that's farther away, I think it's hard to know whether that's a risk factor or not. Right. Great. In most cases, the cardiovascular disease that you're trying to prevent is adult onset. Therefore, what are the mainstays of prevention or treatment in children? This is a really good question, and often it's very hard to manage this because unlike the other diseases that we actually take care of and present in childhood, this is way later. Right. And even though there are changes that we see on echocardiogram or on our vascular tests that we do, for example, or even ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, they don't have symptoms. So it's very hard for both patients and families to sort of grasp what they need to do. Well, it's hard to motivate someone to do something about a problem that they don't think exists. That is exactly right. And this treatment, other than treating the hypertension with medication and treating the elevated lipids sometimes with medication, it's all diet and lifestyle. It's practicing healthy eating habits and exercising regularly, which can be really difficult for for families for, for various reasons. So I think in terms of healthy lifestyle, five to eight servings of fruits and vegetables, you know, avoid adding sugar. And in terms of exercise, we really recommend 45 minutes to an hour of aerobic exercise every day. And sometimes gym class doesn't really do that. And oftentimes it's not every day or every semester. Mm -hmm. So, and other times there's no access to areas that they can exercise. And the other issue is to limit screen time to two hours a day, which is sort of a surrogate to get them, get kids moving. Get them moving. So how does your new cardiovascular risk assessment clinic sort of address this nature that there are so many lifestyle factors that maybe I'm imagining in a clinic like this, the cardiologist actually has a smaller role in some senses than the other pieces of this picture, because like we said, there might not even be cardiovascular disease yet. That's exactly right, actually. That's why I'm so excited about our preventative cardiovascular program and the cardiovascular risk assessment clinic is one arm of that program. Hypertension clinic and lipid clinic are the other two arms. These were both separate clinics and Dr. Brothers and I, who's my co-director and head of the lipid clinic, came together and said we should bring all of this together because we all want the same resources. And I think What's exciting is we now have a nutritionist and an exercise physiologist that neither of our clinics really had separately. Mm -hmm. They are the key to this. So you're right. We spend very little time with the patient. We communicate the findings. But it's really the nutritionist and the exercise physiologist that spend the most time. Mm -hmm. And not only do they outline what can be done at home, 
they give them the papers, but then they follow up, something that we were not able to do before and something that a pediatric cardiologist or a primary care doctor or other subspecialists may not have the resources to do. Right. So they call families, they text the kids. We're developing a platform for a more reliable way of communicating to really check to see where they are. So there's accountability mm-hmm. to the patient that they're going to be expected to make these um, make these goals every week. Right. That's great. That's a great resource that your clinic has. And I and I think it's more, you know, doing it in their home environment rather than coming. I, I think it's really hard mm-hmm. for families to come here multiple times to Chop Maine for mm-hmm. classes and things like that. And so I think this is just another option mm-hmm. for them to do things at home. That's great. And I know I can be on my best behavior at the doctor's office, but then following through with those things at home is really where the challenge is. So it's nice that you're touching base with families in in their real life setting. I think you're right. And I think as I was talking to you before we started this, it is very hard in a 15 minute or a 30 minute visit when you're focused on one particular organ system or a sick visit to really talk thoroughly about these issues. There's certainly room for improvement in the division of cardiology with how we counsel these patients. In fact, in a multi-center QI project, we were one of the worst for documenting and counseling on elevated BMI and high blood pressure in our patients with congenital heart disease. And the rate of obesity and high blood pressure is similar in our population as it is to the NHANES data in the general population. And so I think for this probably holds true for many of the subspecialties. And I think having a comprehensive program like this that's accessible could really enhance the holistic approach to our patients rather than just focusing on one subspecialty or the other. Mm -hmm. And another way speaking of a holistic approach, is the family, which you mentioned before. And there are many family factors that play into these diagnoses. Parents may have the same diagnosis as the child, or they may have the disease that we're trying to prevent from developing in the child. So how do you support the family as a unit when we're pediatricians, or in your case, a pediatric cardiologist? I think this is quite challenging. There are social determinants of health that we in an office visit cannot change. These interventions or these treatments really require the whole family to be present and to advocate for this at home. Some families do use the child's issue as motivation to change their lifestyle as well, and it's really a pleasure to see that when families say to me, you told me to eat more broccoli or make smoothies or do something. Right. And we've started doing that. And But not all families can do that because of where they live or their income mm-hmm. or access to grocery stores or, or schools that don't provide adequate lunches. Right. So this problem cannot be solved just by physicians and other providers in the office. I think this will require us to to shift into public health mode, reach out to the communities and reach out to schools and develop programs that are in these places where our patients spend the most time. 
I'm hoping that with this program, we can grow it to the point where we can start to do some of this public health work as well. Your division has a good track record with getting defibrillators into public spaces and doing other public health outreach. So if anyone can do it, I'm sure that your division can. We really, we do have some amazing role models like Dr. Vetter, who, who's really been phenomenal in this, and we hope we can follow through as well. Yeah, because you're right. This is multifactorial, right? So, and having your multidisciplinary team and family involvement is all very important. So, in talking about all of this, how successful are we with our early screening and childhood intervention in preventing early adult onset cardiovascular disease? This is a great question. And and one that I think is the holy grail of <laughs> what we're doing is right. whether or not all of these efforts now really, really result in a better quality of life and a longer quantity of life for our patients after we let them go from CHOP. Right. It's hard to know. I don't think there is research that follows kids from childhood into late adulthood to really track how their health is progressing. I think with the technology we have now and hopefully with this program, we can start to collect that data, mm -hmm. build a database, and follow these patients along. It sounds like a call to action for your fellows. I, I smell a research project. <laughs> I think that's, that's a great idea. And I, I do think that we at CHOP really have, have to have this as part of our mission we have done so much collectively in saving kids' lives, in creating better quality of life for children who have chronic medical conditions. And I think we take care of them well into early adulthood, but we don't know what happens to them in adulthood. And I think we have to set them up for success. So in addition to taking care of their primary conditions, I think overall quality of life has to do with preventing these risk factors. Because just because you've been treated for your medical condition doesn't protect you from getting these risk factors. Right. And in some conditions, you have a higher risk no matter what. Right. So I think it is part of our goal to make sure that these kids stay healthy. And we have to figure out how best to do that. Well, I can't imagine that a visit to you and your clinic and some education about diet and exercise wouldn't benefit everyone. So we appreciate the care you take of all of our cardiology patients, but particularly helping us now identify these kids who are at risk who we may not have been paying as close attention to. And now that we know that they're in these high-risk groups, and there are things that we can do, we know that we can refer. So how do we find your clinic, and how do we refer patients to you? You can order a referral on EPIC as consult to preventive cardiovascular program, and you can select within the consult cardiovascular risk assessment clinic if you have, if the patient has a uh, risk factor there's also selections for hypertension clinic and lipid heart clinic. Great. So those are the different arms within that order. Perfect. You can also call our program coordinator at 215-590-2200. Her name is Ashley Kisak. 
And lastly, you can always email me at nadarajans at email.shop.edu if you have any questions or if you have a patient that might warrant a referral. Great. And we know that we can always reach the Division of Cardiology through 1-800-TRY-CHOP if we have a patient in clinic and we have a question. So you can also find them that way for this or other concerns. Thank you so much for joining me today and teaching us more about this patient population and for all you do to take care of our patients here. Thank you so much, Katie, for inviting me. And this is a great podcast. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.